0: The first cut on this record has been cross format focused for airplay success.
1: The men beat on the drums. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune Magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Margaret Griebowitz. We chatted about her new book, Mountains and Desire, Climbing versus the End of the World. We talked about how the notion of the boho climbing rat, who forgoes a normal life and conventional ideas of success, has given way to the idea of the modern climber as emblematic of entrepreneurial achievement and heteronormativity. We also talked about Free Solo, the 2018 documentary on Alex Honnold's attempt to free-climb the vertical rock face of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, and how the documentary illuminates the themes of Margaret's book. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is China in One Village by Liang Hong. After a decade away from her ancestral family village, during which time she became a writer and literary scholar in Beijing, Liang Hong started visiting her rural hometown in landlocked Henan province. What she found was an extended family riven by the seismic changes in Chinese society, and a village turned inside out by emigration, neglect and environmental despoliation. For many months Hong walked the roads and fields of her village, recording the stories of her relatives. China in One Village, the story of one town and the changing world, is the outcome of this fascinating journey. It is a book that combines family memoir, literary observation, and social commentary, telling the story of contemporary China through one observer, one family, and one village. A bestseller in China, it is now out in English from Verso Books, and you can get it as part of your June Verso Book Club reading. And now to today's interview. Margaret Grimovitz is a philosopher and author. Her books include Whale Song, The National Park to Come, and Why Internet Porn Matters. Her most recent book, which was the topic of our conversation, is Mountains and Desire, Climbing Versus the End of the World. So you write in the introduction to the book that, as you put it, my way into the vast philosophical conundrum that is the mountains was less via philosophy and more via fangirlhood and popular culture So I wonder if if we could just start with with you maybe saying something about how you first got interested in mountains and mountain climbing. And initially, was there a period where your interest was relatively straightforward and maybe akin to other forms of sport fandom? Or were there always, do you think, deeper questions in relation to mountains and mountaineering that you felt that you were thinking about?
0: I don't think there were any deeper questions for a long time. I didn't realise for, you know, until I became a trained philosopher, I didn't realize that mountaineering was so sort of overdetermined with like, you know, cultural and spiritual weight and these kinds of massive existential questions. I thought it was just another thing that athletes did during the Cold War (laughs) when I was young. And you know what, I was quite surprised, I think, eventually to learn that there was this age-old existential, well, I thought it was age-old, and I found out later that, of course, it has a history like anything else, and it's not that old at all, that question of why do you do this? You know, no one asks the the Olympian gold medal swimmer, right, why they do this. And so it became clear to me at, at a certain point that mountaineering had kind of a different meaning. But I think prior to that, yeah, I just watched it, you know, as I say in the book, my country of origin, Poland, especially at that time in the 80s and 90s, was a place where mountaineers were considered just celebrity athletes. Um, They were among the top, you know, Polish mountaineers were among the top mountaineers in the history of the sport ever and continue to be. So Poles were just very proud of of their accomplishments. And it's only later that I I discovered that there there are so many different stories to tell about what mountain climbing has meant to people and why it is a sport that has such an audience, despite actually having no arena, right? (laughs) I mean, it's not even something that we watch on television, right? We literally just sort a- Aside of,
1: from documentaries. Perhaps,
0: exactly. Which are always sort of retro. Well, maybe not always, but yeah, but they're, they're, they're not live, right? So we're not really watching something, a sporting event as it's, as it's happening, which is what made Free Solo so unique, right? And in Free Solo, there's this idea that you're watching something happening live.
1: This is the uh, documentary about Alex Honnold. Uh, yes. Uh, is it El Capitan at Yos- Yosemite El Capitan. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: In Yosemite National Park in California. Yes which is sort of a very iconic place for Americans and for, you know, the history of American public lands and environmental imagination and rock climbing and all kinds. I mean, it's sort of at the top of many lists, <laughs> let's put it that way, at once, right? So, and then of course, his enormous achievement. So for me, it was a very innocuous sort of spectator sports type interest. And it's only later that I found out that I, if I, you know, if I really wanted to write about mountains, I'd have to, or I thought I would have to navigate this dark forest of like philosophy of mountaineering. And, you know, what did the mountains mean to the Europeans in the 1700s? And, oh, no, what am I going to do with all this? I don't want to read all that stuff. (laughs) And then thankfully, along comes Free Solo. And here suddenly is this moment where these, you know, massive, massive audiences are taking part in this event at once and that's watching Honold free climb this rock let's say right this monolith so yeah I think that free solo in a way freed me from from all that literature review and reminded me that we are really talking about uh, there's a certain level on which we are talking about just witnessing a phenomenon of popular culture and that's what I wanted to write about
1: and in terms of your response to Free soul. I mean, it, it's a documentary I've seen and I, I find it, in spite of the fact that, you know, one knows how, how it all turns out, you know, I found it fairly terrifying. Is, is, is that an experience you had watching it yourself? Do you find yourself looking through your fingers and, and, and so on?
0: Not exactly looking through my fingers. I mean, there's something something amazing about watching Honnold do what he does in, in any, any kind of video of him doing anything. And there are probably videos that are even more that are made even more provocatively (laughs) that you can, that you can watch where you're just like, I can't believe I'm looking at this. But I didn't find it scary to watch him do what he does. I had a lot of different emotions, but no, I think, I think the fact that, you know, we know that he survives, right? So that pretty much gets us off the hook from that initial fear that he might fall. But of course, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's all happening against the backdrop of the stories of so many of his friends having died already. And one thing that is very powerful is being able to see how those deaths would have happened when they did, right? Because we weren't there for those deaths.
1: Yeah, we we see the particular places on the face which are the most dangerous and you're, you're most likely. Yeah, to and come just what
0: off. that what that looks like. Right, right. And that it, it'll be it would be exactly then that it would happen. And and so there's something kind of int- there is something there is some kind of connection to those deaths, even though I'm not afraid of him falling.
1: Yes. I mean, I remember watching a documentary about the, the north face of the Eiger in the, in the Swiss Alps. Uh, they show a climber there and they can see where pitons have been hammered into the rock and talking about is this somebody who fell off in one of the, the early disasters when, when people were attempting to, to climb that. I think we might come back to free solo, but just going to the introduction of of the book. So the book begins with the first successful attempt to summit Everest in, in 1953 by uh, Tenzing Norgay and, and Edmund Hillary, the latter who you know g- gets more of the of the plaudits, of course. Coming up to Everest in in the current moment, you write that in recent years, reports from the, the climbing season in in the Himalayas are less about climbing achievements and more often you see these stories about. Crowds causing bottlenecks, and we've all seen that very, you know, famous photo of apparently people effectively queuing to get up to the top. And also, you mentioned the the levels of trash and and rubbish that is on the uh, on the mountain. Do you think that's an accurate description of the situation at at Everest, or do you think, to some extent, our very understandable anxieties about the state of the world and about climate change, coupled maybe with a certain more misanthropic strand of environmental thinking? means that we can only see human interaction with the natural world, in this case, the, in the Himalayas, as negative and, and destructive, and that perhaps there are still, even today, you know, positive stories to be told about, about people in the, in, the, in the Himalayas.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think both are true, right? It's not, that, it's not that the stories are inaccurate, but there's definitely a massive shift in focus to these kinds of stories, right, rather than the kinds of stories that we might have been interested in 20 years ago which were stories of, you know, conquest and triumph, right? Or maybe even stories of, of death, but again, what kind of death are we talking about, right? There's the, the tragic heroic death, which is a very different thing for the public to wrap its head around than the kinds of stories that we're reading in the media now, where you have people dying in front, in front of other, like climbers sitting down and dying in front of other climbers who just pass them by and keep going because they're in such a hurry and because, you know, time is of the essence and all that stuff. So there's death and there's death. <laughs> and that's another thing I, I I really want to bring out in the book as well. I think that this sh- the shift that you are describing, right? I mean, I think that's really what my book is about. And that if we're looking at this kind of shift in, ha- in what mountaineering is coming to mean, right? Then the question becomes, do those, you know, those real things that once motivated climbing, that many climbers today will tell you are still very much there, right? And that's why I wanted to include all of those interviews, or of those moments of interviews in my book as well, right? When Honold says, man, I think I'm still doing it for the right reasons. Or when Uli Steck says, you know, Everest, despite everything that's happening on Everest, it's still the highest mountain in the world, right? And this, this is why I go back there. There's always, you hear from climbers, a kind of invoking of a kind of timeless truth about the practice that motivates them. And I'm interested in what happens to that timeless truth when you've got a public that has lost sight of it, right? When you have a, a, a vicarious public, an audience that has been sort of, you know, pushing you along and urging you along, that's now saying things like, I don't get why you're
1: doing any of this anymore,
0: because all I can see is destruction and obsession and arrogance.
1: And on that comment from the climber Uli Stek, who uh, of course died in the Himalayas in a a climbing accident, you make the point in the book that that emphasising of, you know, Everest is still Everest. The fact of of saying that means that the meaning of of Everest is now contested. It doesn't mean what it once did. And you also suggest that its cultural resonance is, is close to being exhausted and that climbing no longer means what it once did and and uh, I think you you mentioned the philosopher Baudrillard and his comments about about the moon landings and the way in which the first moon landing is not a step towards anything else it's it's, it's a full stop it's uh, it's the end of something and we can perhaps see the the successful summiting of you know the last kind of problems of the Himalayas as, as they're described as being similar in in that way could you talk about that a little bit
0: it's funny you should ask me this now, just as we've you know, discovered that Jeff Bezos is going to send himself into space as a tourist, <laughs> right? And we've been, we're have we up against the billionaire space race now, you know, all these guys being these super rich guys going up and, you know, kind of, um, as I like to argue, ruining <laughs> ruining it for the rest of us. <laughs> um, you know, and, I, and of course these are, these are related things, right? I mean, part of the crit- critique that so many people have of everest these days is even when they don't know anything about it they'll say oh yeah it's just it's just a bunch of you know rich dweebs who can afford yeah. to go up Do- there and doing that bucket and, like, list yeah doing their bucket list and you know like yeah they train quote unquote great they got to go to the gym for four <laughs> months who cares you know because of course the same thing is happening with these space race guys they're going to have to train if they want to go up into space and they're using that as a kind of protection against the charge of being tourists but i mean that tourist charge is really quite powerful right because it's again we're talking about tourists as opposed to what tourists as opposed to real explorers or tourists as a, or you know uh, yeah tourists as opposed to the mountaineer who goes somewhere that is unexplored and comes back right? With all this new knowledge, like that's not what we're going to get from the billionaire space race. And we know that. And then the question is, right? What does that do to the public's feelings, general feelings about why go into space at all? Right? And what do we think we're going to find out there? (laughs) And what is this practice really about? Like, what is the practice of space travel? What are we trying to get from it? Right? What is it we want from it? And I think that that practice now being sort of populated by aging billionaires (laughs) changes the scene quite dramatically. And likewise, the practice of mountaineering being populated by very wealthy sort of, you know, capitalist growth driven people changes changes that changes it.
1: I mean, it's it's maybe quite an obvious point, but it just occurs to me now that the analogy between the moon landings and and the first Everest uh, ascent is quite striking in some respects. I suppose you know the, the the beauty that you're seeing when you're up there is the beauty of looking down on Earth. Of course, you're in a in a in a situation of depleted or or no oxygen, and yeah, it's kind of you know it's 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 all sort of pretty. But what do you do once you're up there? There doesn't seem to be be anything very much.
0: Absolutely, that's why these are practices that become, they become these incredible sites of projection precisely because they're so, like, as you're pointing out, they're so like, (laughs) they're so plastic, right? I don't want to say they're so devoid of meaning, but they're so sort of under, you know, underdetermined and plastic and malleable. They can mean so many different things. That's one thing I, I try to emphasize in the book. You know, I really want to stay away from any kind of, account of why people climb at all or why they're so interested in the summit because I maintain that people can, will continue to be interested in summiting but summits mean very very different things in very different contexts and there is no one answer to this and there will and we're, we're about to you know we're entering a future in which there will be even more and even greater diversity of answers to this I think
1: on the point around the very jaundiced kind of attitude people take now towards the climbing of Everest, in in particular, and you you know you have that fantastic photo in the in the book of a wedding at, at base camp of people who are you know probably absolutely freezing in like a suit and, and you know wedding dress and so on. And you say that, that you know this kind of image is, is become sort of embarrassing and you know basic almost. But well,
0: it's I, and I want to qualify that. A little bit, if I may interrupt you. Um, it's it's a little cringy, only because all wedding photography is cringy. <laughs> okay, I don't want to say that like <laughs> this is more cringy than any other like you know bombastic wedding photograph. I mean, we just everyone cringes at wedding <laughs> photographs. Okay, done. Sure. Okay, go on.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, it's an, it's an important point. So yeah, I mean, what I was going to say was that although there's this kind of very sort of cynical view of, of climbing in the Himalayas, at the same time there seems to be this awe and you know great valorization of Climbing up places like El Capitan in, in in Yosemite Park, and and I was wondering if you think there's been a shift, perhaps, from an interest in in mountaineering per se, and particularly in very sort of harsh climatic conditions, as in as in the Himalayas, and towards this kind of very technically brilliant rock climbing of of these more accessible places. And is that do you think to do with the fact that it's more visible, that there are greater possibilities for for you know creating documentaries and filming and so on. And also perhaps, and and you talk about this in the book, this prioritization of almost superhuman physicality over maybe other abilities, such as the ability to endure in in very sort of extreme weather conditions, for instance.
0: Absolutely, endure in extreme weather conditions, get along with your teammates for months at a time, you know, in conditions of extreme proximity. Yeah, I think in general, Himalayan mountaineering and just in that kind of like cold, cold climate, you know, high altitude climbing is yeah it's it's not as fashionable to a certain i mean it's not as cool <laughs> let's put it that way i don't want to say it's not as fashionable i don't i don't think it has the cool factor that something like rock climbing has these days and that and there are lots of different reasons for that and one of those i think is also because as I try to make clear in the book, the metrics that were sort of operative in the Himalaya by which we could say, well, these things have been done already and these things haven't been done yet. Those metrics are sort of getting maxed out. So either someone needs to invent new metrics for high altitude climbing and say, now what we're going to do is this and let's all be in a race to do this first, right? Or it's all going to turn to rock climbing, which, you know, there are... There are still so many faces that are that haven't been climbed, and that are you know really really difficult. And yeah, I don't I don't I'm actually not the person to to, to comment on rock climbing because I don't know that much about it. And there is a ton to know about the sport and how it actually works, and how the metrics in that sport work. You know how certain levels of difficulty get determined, who determines them, right? And what are the committees that sign off on these numbers and all that stuff? Yeah, I think Himalayan mountaineering is the stuff of because so much of it happened, so much of the great, great firsts happened, like to the boomers. <laughs> you know, it 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 happened already, and it happened a while back.
1: Yeah, they bought the houses for cheap. They climbed the mountains first.
0: They climbed the mountains. Yeah, they took our <laughs> they mountains. Left, left down nothing it. for us. <laughs> yeah, you know, we look at those photographs and we look at that video footage and. Those, t- those days are over. Those times are over. And, and romanticizing that culture and those forms of masculinity and even those forms of like mediation and film. I mean, all of that is it's in the past. Right. So, yeah, I think I think it's hard to now try. Either that will have to be invented anew, like I said, or it will just kind of fall away and become the stuff of tourists.
1: And thinking about the big climbing and and mountaineering documentaries that there have been over the last, you know, sort of decade or or so, do you think then that perhaps Touching the Void, which is another very popular and famous documentary, which is based on Joe Simpson's book of his climbing accident whilst trying to descend from Sula Grande in in Peru, which is this very tall and and snow covered mountain with a a glacier at, at its base and a more sort of Himalayan like situation? Is that popular? Then, precisely because it's a, it's a story about an accident and trying to survive and endure through that accident, rather than it being about achievement, which is obviously the case with something like Free Solo, where it's about climbing rather than mountaineering, exactly.
0: Well, I mean, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, why, I mean, uh, why, why, do, why do certain stories become so legendary? I, of course, know Touching the Void by heart, but I've also followed a little bit about sort of what, what's happened with that story since then. And from what I understand, Joe Simpson was then sort of, you know, he, he became an inspirational speaker after that.
1: Yes. Right. Yeah.
0: So we're not just talking about that story. That story then got sort of, it didn't just get popular. It also got co-opted by a certain kind of world, right? It got co-opted by the business world, by the corporate world. And and Joe Simpson was, you know, being invited to, to speak to people about what happened to him in a way that was supposed to, you know, turn them into greater achievers, right? So the problem of achievement is never go- is never not there. <laughs> you know, the the specter of achievement is never not there, right? If you can take something like that accident and turn it into a story of achievement against all odds, then you've got at the end and i'm not saying that that simpson has done this at all i'm am t- talking about sort of what how stories like this get co-opted right i think that's that's one of the problems is stories of adversity in the mountains get absolutely co-opted by larger narratives of you can do it no matter what happens to you which isn't really what touching the void is about <laughs> i mean i don't know i it's it's about a lot it's, again it's a it's a fantastic face uh, space for projection right touching the void is as well. And also, I don't know how much touching the void is really popular in the US.
1: Yeah, so that's interesting. I, I wondered about that because it was very popular in the UK and I just wondered if, you know, do, do people in the US care about what happens to British climbers. I don't know.
0: I don't think so. And that was interesting to me too. And and one reason I was so eager to talk to you because finally I was going to get to talk about this in a British context, right? And I mean, you guys, in a way, invented this sport, <laughs> I mean, the, the British were sort of, are very much, you know, you you can't look at the history of mountaineering without without contending with the British presence. So I don't know. It's It's very, you know, I think for Americans, there's a very different relationship to British mountaineering than the Brits have to their own mountaineering.
1: On that point about the way climbing is taken up by management culture and these sort of parallels are drawn from the world of climbing to the world of business. And You point out that today there's this kind of, and this goes back, I suppose, to the, the sort of billionaire adventurers as well, that climbing is now seen as sort of almost part and parcel of, of a successful life in some sense, in a way that it didn't used to be. I mean, you talk about how there was a time not that long ago, I suppose, where climbing was seen as more a kind of a bohemian lifestyle. It was romantic. You were sort of foregoing a normal life in order to do this, whereas now climbing seems part of being a successful person in a more conventional way. And you also talk about how there's an awful lot of heteronormativity in in some of these documentaries, which I thought was a particularly interesting part of the book. Could you expand on those themes a little bit?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there are two things going on. First of all, I don't at any point mean to imply that the climbing rat has disappeared from the mountains, right? I I think the people devoting themselves and their bodies and risking themselves in this way, devoting themselves to this practice are just as out of their minds as they ever were. Okay. (laughs) So, and, and I say that with all the love, um, it's, I don't, I don't think that's changed really very much. The question is sort of what's changed about how we, how we see them and not even see them, but just see the climber. Right. And I'm thinking of the climber that is, you know, that, that is on standing on the top of the mountain in every single one of those quote unquote inspirational posters in a, in like a a business office or in like a lawyer's, you know, waiting room or something. (laughs) And underneath him, it says, you know, inspired or you can do it or something like that. Like who knows who that is? It's, it's no one, right? It's just some stock photo. And, and that's really how climbing lives in the popular imagination. And that's where the normativity is taking place. Right, so it becomes. I mean, for me, what, what's what's kind of weird and creepy is this superimposing of climbing achievement onto everything else that we are constantly being told we need to do in order to have lives that are worth living at all. Right, like you have to have a successful relationship that either is heterosexual or kind of you know mimics heterosexuality in some way. Like, that's what you have to do. Otherwise, your, your life, what kind of life have you had, really? I don't know. I'm not so sure. You know, you have to build wealth. God forbid you actually die poor, right? There couldn't be anything worse than that. You know, and I'm, and I'm, I'm just as subject to these pressures as everybody else, right? Just because I'm screaming about them doesn't, doesn't mean I don't suffer from the pressures. But all of that has become sort of part of the conversation around climbing is strange. All the documentaries about climbers also talk about their personal lives, also talk about their romantic lives, also talk about whether or not they have children. Things that, that I don't think, you know, I don't think would have been that important to audiences in those, those boomer 80s and 90s that we talked about, you know? When audiences were, were fascinated by climbers back then, I don't think the question at the top of their, their lists of questions, you know, was, well, are you going to have children or not? right I, th- I think the the imaginaries were different and the demands the kinds of things that we wanted to hear from climbers were different and and a lot less boring <laughs> you know a lot less boring a lot more sort of like we understood that they were weirdos <laughs> that that they were crazy like yeah that's why they're out there and we're not that's right <laughs> and now something's happened that's that's very different that's all about how well we're all we actually we actually all have the same desires and guess what those desires turn out to be really normal (laughs) like a snooze fest you know
1: yeah there is something incredibly dispiriting about the end of some of those documentaries where it's just yeah it's sort of this weird comfy domesticity after this you know risking your neck sort of situation exactly i mean going back to touching the void i mean i suppose maybe that's you know in some sense a a more kind of old school documentary because again there is nothing about personal lives in that documentary, although I sort of think that were you to ask Joe Simpson about his personal life, he might sort of punch you because he seems like slightly scary, <laughs> scary. He seems very character. salty. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. But
0: I appreciate that about him. I also, you know, I, I wondered about him quite a bit in, while I was writing this and I thought how strange it must be to have, to have this story sort of have that much power and then to have it have these lives of, it, of its own that you have no control over.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting seeing sort of interviews with him. You can sort of see that he's aware that he's, in some sense, you, you know, what happened to him was both the most awful thing and also, you know, a bizarre sort of blessing in, in what it's meant for his career and personal success and so on. But yeah, it's, it's obviously a very strange thing to go through. In terms of that shift of the way climbers have perceived over over time and, and the different ways in which they're depicted, where do you think risk fits into this? Because one of the things I was thinking reading the book was about Entrepreneurial culture and and and, and neoliberalism and the, and the way in which risk, you know, this may be uh, simplification, but but risk shifted from the sort of more social democratic era into the neoliberal era as being less something that you avoided and more something that you. You know, you you were sort of a proper person if you if you if you took risks, yeah. and, and it makes me wonder whether today, you know, risking your neck to climb a mountain or, or a difficult rock face is that maybe in some ways more intelligible to people today than it might have seemed in, in the nineteen sixties or seventies.
0: I mean, first of all, I think that yeah, I think I think risk is very much at the centre of why mountaineering gets invoked in business contexts, right? Uh, today more so than ever but at the same time i'm not sure that that makes anything more intelligible i'm trying to wrap my head around that question First, so i'm go- i'm going to maybe i'm going i'm going i actually think that that's, that question's too hard for me alex <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> i can't answer that that because i don't even know man alex my next book needs to be the intelligibility of risk <laughs> because that is just a fantastic problem space like i don't even know where to begin Because, yeah, what is risk exactly? And what does it mean to people at various moments and in in different contexts? And one thing that I think is worth pointing out is that the kind of, uh, I was going to say that something like climbing Everest today is less risky than it used to be, which is why there are so many more successful ascents. But I don't know that I want to say that because now you've got me all confused about what risk actually means. I like the question but I think it's 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 super complicated. Do you see what I mean?
1: Well, I think maybe I'm more simple minded but, but I guess when I was thinking that question I was just thinking that it would be sort of to my mind that it's a fairly straightforward yes that it, it is that taking such sort of those kind of risks today are considered more understandable because we live in a world where where it seems that there is that encouragement of taking a big risk and maybe you fall flat on your face, but better that than sort of mediocrity or, or being averagely poor, better to try and, and maybe you get the lucky break because there isn't perhaps as much as a social safety net as there once was. And maybe that's, this is more the case in Europe and the UK, perhaps in the United States where, where the welfare state was always smaller. But I suppose that those were the terms I was thinking of it in, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. But at the same time, the more people become critical of wilderness recreation and of, you know, Europeans traveling to Asia and to the Himalaya in particular, the more people become critical of that, the less those risks are shiny and impressive, you know, the more you've got, also you've got this critique of of the risk and people saying like, why would you risk yourself for something that actually doesn't mean what you think it means?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, I, I guess, in my head, and, and when reading the book, I'm, I'm seeing quite a sharp division between going to the Himalayas, say, or the Andes, and climbing somewhere like El Capitan, I suppose, which I feel like is more sort of uncomplicatedly endorsed these days. But maybe that's not that's not right.
0: You know, and keep in mind, a lot of these high end expedition companies in the Himalayas, they guarantee you an ascent.
1: Mm, yeah. Yeah,
0: (laughs) Right? If you have enough money, I mean, it's it's literally,
1: I didn't, I didn't get my (laughs) ascent. I mean, they sort of
0: guarantee, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how the legality of that works, (laughs) but, but they will guarantee it. They'll basically, you know, if, if you, you, you can have that, a completely risk-free experience (laughs) if you have enough money. So if I understand it correctly, so it's not what it used to, well, let's just put it this way. It's not, it ain't what it used to be. So I don't think it's just that it's the same level of risk that's become more intelligible. I wouldn't put it that way.
1: In the second chapter of the book, you write about Jacqueline Loman, a communications professor who who is un, unable to walk and who climbed Mount, and I'm probably going to say this wrong. Katahdin. 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 Okay, that's good. That's yes. not how I was going to pronounce it. So this is the the highest mountain in, in the state of Maine. And you describe the way in which she achieved that ascent and, and the way it, it sort of upends the way in which climbers living with disability are often portrayed, which is often as almost superhuman in, the, in their physical abilities and their ability to to do the the unexpected, what people wouldn't consider possible for them, whereas Lohman was clearly, very obviously involved in a, in a lot of teamwork with a, a lot of other people in order to to achieve that ascent. Could you talk about that and the way you describe her ascent? It, it very much contradicts the kind of rugged individualism which seems to be so common in in climbing culture.
0: Right. Yeah. And even in a lot of paraclimbing, Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which which can be sort of very you know, super crip oriented, it can be very much about, you know, what, what the individual body was able to do, rather than what a group was able to do. I think, I think that's what was, what was so interesting about Jackie's experience was, was precisely that it highlights, you know, this, this, I wasn't there, but I can imagine this interesting creature, <laughs> right, that's made up of these individual people who are sort of handing her off, right, to each other because she's being carried by one person and then carried by another person and then carried by another person. And, of course, she's not being passively carried, but as she explained to me, and as you can see if you you research what she's written about it, it's she has to do a great deal of work to sort of hold on to the... She's kind of clinging to the back of the person who's carrying her. And that can be, and was, in fact, super physically exhausting for her. Yes, yeah. So... Yeah, so the whole thing really... Even though I
1: suppose that's a position, when one thinks of that situation, one thinks of sort of dependency uh, rather, than, rather than effort. Yeah,
0: yeah, but think about what it's like to, you know, be carried, right, <laughs> as an adult person. <laughs> think about what it's like to even be on someone's, you know, piggyback as a child. Like, I remember what that felt like. And like, yeah, you had to really work for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or you're going to fall off. <laughs> so... Yeah, so I think what her ascent does is it really sort of stretches the boundaries of what could count as climbing and and really sort of tests us as the audience, right? Forces us to ask ourselves at what point is it no longer climbing?
1: In the same chapter, you write about the ecofeminist thinker Karen Warren and you describe the contrast she she made between in her words, oh, sorry, in your words. In fact, a sense that are understood in androcentric colonial terms as as conquests, from those that are more about climbs described in sort of cooperative and, and relational terms. But you argue that there is actually something lost by by drawing that quite sharp binary yeah. on, on the issue of, of summiting. What is it that you think is lost, or what do you think is perhaps not so helpful about making that sort of sharp distinction?
0: Well, first of all, I, I don't think it's real at all. I mean if you if you read any climbing writing, everyone is constantly talking about both things at once. <laughs> the they're absolutely in it for the summit. But the hour to hour minute to minute experience of everything from training to preparing to choosing your team to to the climb itself and to, you know, to what turns out to be actually the most difficult part of the climb which is the descent, right? That's where most of deaths and accidents happen. So all of that is always about all these other things. All these things that we as non-climbers don't know about because all we can imagine is the person on top of the, the person on the summit, you know, wielding their flag, right? And so I think it's sort of a false distinction in the first place. And I don't think it describes the experiences of many climbers, certainly not the star climbers, at all like the elite climbers that's not how they would describe their experiences and I think I'm not sure what is to be gained when we focus on this kind of you know relational climbing that doesn't care about summiting when we want to say that that's the stuff of women climbers for example or that's the stuff of indigenous climbers right they're not you know they're they're in it for you know I don't know spiritual rituals rather than the summit like, well, I'm not sure that that's true. And maybe, the, you know, I mean, w- and what about the summit as a spiritual ritual? And what about the summit as as a massive, you know, achievement from a feminist perspective? I'm not sure what, I'm not sure how to put it exactly, but I'm not sure we're doing anyone any favors by asking them to disavow the summit.
1: Yeah, I mean, it can seem somewhat patronizing, I suppose, because, I mean, as you say, it sort of posits women as just being about relationships and, and right, exactly behavior and so on, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, this idea that, yeah, that women climbers aren't about the summit, you tell that to any <laughs> woman climber, please.
1: Yeah. <laughs> in the fourth chapter of the book, I think, you write about climbing in the so-called death zone. So this is above 26,000 feet, uh, the kind of altitudes where most humans you know, can't survive for extended periods of time because of the low level of oxygen in the atmosphere. And you talk about the way the issue of of, of oxygen deprivation has a much greater resonance now, of course, in the era of COVID and ventilators and and so on. Could you sort of flesh out a little bit what you were getting at in this chapter? Because it's the one chapter for me where I I wasn't entirely sure what you were driving at in making parallels or, or bringing these two topics together.
0: Well, I found it striking that one of the things that we seem to be after high-altitude climbing is trying to find that limit right trying to find where how high do would we have to go right in order to finally die <laughs> like in order to in, like how high is too high right that's that's sort of been the question and every time we thought we knew the answer we turned out to be wrong so this question of oxygen is really at the forefront of what drives climbing as a kind of post human or a post humanist imaginary right this idea that the that we are always changing into the the future form of ourselves, right that human bodies are 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 evolving still that human bodies are still you know growing into whatever they're going to be the The oxygen question is what really fuels when we talk about you know human achievements in the Himalaya, we are, we're, we're right in the background of that, right? We're actually talking about oxygen. And we're talking about this question, how high is too high? And what can the human body really endure? How little oxygen can the human body really endure? So I found that interesting, you know, <laughs> as I was writing about this, here we, you know, and suddenly enter COVID-19.
1: Which of course closes the, the mountain, so to speak
0: closes the mountains. Meanwhile, you know, I'm sitting in the United States and the Black Lives Movement takes as its main hashtag for a few weeks, at least, hashtag I can't breathe. So, you know, there was quite a bit of conversation around what breathing actually means and why we need to breathe, (laughs) right? What is, you know, breathing room, there are so many things that almost sound like metaphors, right? Like hashtag I can't breathe was this kind of metaphor, but it wasn't a metaphor, right? In George Floyd's case. And and of course, in the case of COVID-19, it's not a metaphor. It is and isn't, right? We've got We've got this world that's literally coming apart at the seams and all these people dying on ventilators in the hospital at the same time. And we've got a late capitalist culture that uses the high altitude mountaineer as its ultimate icon of achievement. And what the high altitude mountaineer actually is, is the person standing, we imagine, because as I point out in the book, it's not actually like this, but we imagine them sort of coming up to this precipice, right? Past which it's impossible to
1: live. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose one thing I just hearing you say that that's interesting to me about that is the way that obviously a, a big appeal, or it seems to be the case, that a, a big appeal of mountains is is the sense of spaciousness that there aren't people around, and as we we know, that's not always the case. But you know, almost that sense of you know up here where the air is clear, but in fact it's it's up here where the air is not, and you actually you know you're risking brain damage all the time you're 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 up there.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you're getting brain damage all the time you're up there if you're actually climbing without oxygen, right? So this has been shown already, that there's there's going to be some damage to the brain. There can't not be, except that it's, you know, either negligible or or climbers just don't mind <laughs> because <laughs> because it's worth it. It's worth it for for the other stuff that they get from it, right? So, and how much brain do you really need? I don't know. Um,
1: <laughs> not not don't much know. in my case. I could probably do, not, I could probably mine neither. I was going to say, you tell it. me, Alex, <laughs>
0: how much brain do you really need? <laughs> yeah, so... That fascinating connection between high altitudes and COVID, I think we haven't begun to really explore it yet. I mean, the fact that there are doctors in the Himalaya, there are sort of whole like research teams in there. The one that I wrote about is called Extreme Everest. They do the research they do, not for the sake of climbers and climbers experiences they do that research up there in the mountains to understand what's happening in ICU units in hospitals right to understand hypoxia in general across the board so that knowledge will only now become you know (laughs) will now become even more valuable of course as we continue to struggle with COVID which as I think you know most people agree isn't going anywhere and in fact, I just recently read. Someone sent me something. I think it might have been from the Guardian, where climbers and their porters are being asked to bring their oxygen bottles back the down. Cylinders,
1: yes. And no, I saw the same. Did you see that? Story? Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: that and that's specifically about COVID, right? So now we're talking about you know the people in hospitals or yeah the people in hospitals and climbers actually using the same equipment. So there's, there's something to be said here. And I feel like that's only going to begin to emerge now, especially since, you know, the, the mountains are open again.
1: In that chapter, you mentioned the way in which the use of, of supplementary oxygen is regarded by sort of many very, you know, high-level skilled climbers as being akin to doping. And, and you make the point that, aside from the practice of, of free soloing, that, that nobody expects climbers to climb without ropes, but there is this feeling that there's something a bit, a bit dodgy about using, using oxygen, in spite of the fact that you know, the first descent, obviously, of, of Everest was, was done using oxygen cylinders. So what's going on there, do you think? What, why is that the case that there's nothing wrong with ropes, but there's something a bit, a bit, it might be cheating if you're using oxygen?
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think I really understated it in the book. Now that I know a little bit more about it, I would say it's, it's, it's not even akin to doping, it's considered doping. doping, Yeah,
1: that mm-hmm. that
0: is doping, absolutely, and that it just doesn't count. It just makes your ascent not count, right? So when the Nepali team had their first winter ascent of K2, which is what I end the, the book with, as soon as that happened, the next day, there were interviews with climbers who immediately said, yeah, but they used they used oxygen, or some of them used oxygen, so it doesn't actually count as a first ascent. I mean, it's, this is the most contentious thing in climbing. And from what I understand, there is no such thing as elite athletes seriously climbing with oxygen, right? So supplemental oxygen is for the rest of us. (laughs) It's for the rest of us so that we don't die up there so we can go back to our, you know, (laughs) our boring lives and our jobs afterwards. But yeah, from what I understand, there's oxygen use is just not, it disqualifies you in the minds of almost all elite athletes as a peer. So why that is, you know, that's kind of one of the questions for me. I mean, I have the same question as you do, right? Why this and not something else?
1: Is it that it's a more sort of obviously technological form of assistance? You know, there's something very old school about about ropes and carabiners and, and so on that's not quite the case with oxygen tanks? Or, I mean, that's not all that persuasive to me, but I wonder if that's something... I
0: no because I mean they're pretty they're pretty old yeah <laughs> you know those tanks are pretty old you I mean, look at those pictures and everything looks like that's like saying you know that submarines are too modern or yeah, something it's yeah. like those things are old man <laughs> um I, I I don't know honestly I don't know what it's about but it it might have to do with just how just how basic breathing is right that in our minds it lives as the most as this absolutely original thing that we are doing this absolutely primal you know like short of just you know blood pumping through our veins which of course is related to oxygen (laughs) breathing the the, that that whole system the way it works that's what we are Mm,
1: yeah
0: right and this idea that there's something
1: semi in control
0: yeah this idea that we're sort of that this is that this is what makes you this body and that it's not extra, you know? So I, that's really the best answer I can come up with. But I have the exact same question. Like, why why was it, why was it this that caught people's imagination so much?
1: Is there maybe a thought that, as you say, if it's so sort of central to the idea of what being a human is, that if you're going out there with oxygen, it's like you're a cyborg or something, and there's distasteful about that.
0: I mean, you know, there are people who are better equipped to answer this than I. Historians of mountaineering, in the himalaya are you know they'll they'll talk about this at length about how pulmonary physiology is born at the same time as himalayan mountaineering not by accident right and so what we'd really have to look at is not just the the conversations around mountaineers but the conversations around breathing right and pulmonary physiology at that time, right, we'd have to look at the history of medicine. We'd have to look at well, how did breathing come to be what it is? How did breathing come to mean what it, what it means? Because things weren't always like this.
1: Is there anything you'd sort of like to say before we finish up or anything you, you feel you particularly like to address? I mean, there's so much in the book.
0: Um, yeah, there's a lot in the book. I think I would only add that, you know, one of, one of my main points that I want readers to take away is... That these things that we think are these activities or practices that we think are driven by human desires that are absolutely basic and universal, they're actually driven by desires that are changing all the time and that that are very changeable, right? And so I think that was the lesson for me writing this book and thinking about mountaineering in this way was to realize just how much, you know, desires can change. And that's why I stayed away from doing a philosophy of mountaineering.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because I didn't want timeless, universal truths that I could extract out of climbing, <laughs> right? That that's not what I was in the business of. Yeah, about. it's in, I was in a in more
1: sociological ad- place, perhaps. Or
0: um, no, I was just sort of in the business of of sort of doing a kind of almost doing a kind of ethnography of desire, <laughs> you know, just trying to show that these are that that these are things that that are. that 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 change over time that are historically variable right and and contextual so and so that's that's why i sort of kept returning to george mallory's because it's there as again a site of projection right because we can make that answer mean anything we want and we always could and we always have made that answer mean anything we want
1: you've been listening to politics theory other a podcast from tribune magazine If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.